oh, well, I should get my developer tools off the screen here. There we go. All right, we're live. Hey, what do you know? I'm actually, I know what I'm doing, kind of. Hi, C. John. Hey, Ken. Where am I? <laughs> You're in a nice, then you got a nice place with a nice couch and fireplace and grand. I'm moving to your house. That's where yeah, I want to go. My place. I'd love to. <laughs> I'm at the chariot place. office, so. Figure. Welcome, everybody, to Tech Chat Tuesday, number 47, I believe, based on the fact that I'm showing the Tech Chat Tuesday, number 46. And that's for Tuesday, March 15th, the Ides of March uh, 2022. I'm Ken Rimple. I'm Sujan Tapati, and we have all the Ides that I care for these days. Yeah, we, we don't need any more Ides, you know? No. Um, if you are interested in subscribing, if you stumbled onto this thing on YouTube um, through a Twitter post or whatever, if you head over to Chariot Solutions and you go to the Resources uh, Podcasts tab, you'll see our page for this. You'll see an RSS feed. Uh, if we hit that page, uh, you can go to iTunes or RSS and subscribe. You can go to the iTunes store. You can go to all sorts of different podcast uh, places, including Spotify, uh, and go ahead and subscribe from there. Um, we're going to talk about dev news today. Mostly we're going to talk a little bit more uh, in depth about the Apple event that just came out. There's a, a number of things that, that came out of that event that we want to kind of kick around a little bit. So we'll spend a little time marinating in that towards the middle of the show. Um, if you want to see our content that we put up, we put a ton of content up there. First of all, there's the podcast. There is our blog, which has a ton of stuff. I'm going to be bringing up one of my articles a little bit in the, in the blog section of our talk today. Lots and lots of different tech here, uh, front end, back end, uh, you name it. It's all in here somewhere, some mobile, uh, if you uh, search around a little bit. We also, uh, let's see, have a ton of content on YouTube. So if you go to youtube.com slash chariot solutions, you will see all of our videos. We have not, we, we're not new to this. <laughs> We've been doing this for years. So uh, we broken it up into some playlists to help you out. Uh, if you are interested in talking uh, and seeing Philly Emerging Technologies for the Enterprise, you can watch the entire event from last year uh, by hitting our Philly ETE 2021 list. Uh, you can look, since it's uh, Women's Month, uh, uh, spotlight our amazing women speakers. We have 71 uh, articles, I believe, there. We have a super playlist of all the ETEs going back forever and a lot more. Also, Tech Chat Tuesdays, if you're curious and going backwards and looking at the things we talked about before. My daughter thinks that you and I are YouTube celebrities. She's the only one. Yeah. <laughs> Your daughter's my favorite now. Uh, send her a t-shirt. Um, <laughs> like she doesn't have 20 chariot t-shirts to choose from. Right. Also want to put in a quick plug. We are hiring. Uh, we're looking for front-end and back-end developers. And we'll talk about that a little bit more towards the end of the show. But the main thing I want to talk about at the moment is Philly Emerging Technologies for the Enterprise 2022 coming up on April 19th and 20th. It's a virtual event, uh, and uh, tickets are on sale now. First things first, the early bird has been extended until uh, March 31st. Uh, right now it's still 150, I believe. Uh, and if you register before the early bird is up, you will save, uh, I think it's going to be 225 after that. So still a low cost event, but hey, you know what? Tickets are going now and there's some really good uh, speakers coming up in this. The other thing I want to mention is the schedule is online. We did our scheduling uh, about, I think, a week and a half ago. And now we have the full run of the show. So if you want to see who's speaking when, you can see our opening and closing uh, keynoters which we'll get to in a second, and a ton of other talks. 
all with times. The way we're doing it, we're doing three talks at a time. Uh, not really tracks, but just basically three separate talks. We try to split them up so that they don't overlap in terms of technology types. So you won't see two web talks at the same time or two you know, server programming talks, for example. We try to spread it out nicely. Uh, and we've got some amazing speakers. I wanted to bring up briefly uh, that we've got Corey Doctorow as our uh, closing keynote. He's a huge get for us. Um, very, very big uh, science fiction author, activist, and journalist. He's been on This Week in Tech a lot and a number of other places as well. And he's an Electronic Frontier Foundation member. Um, his talk is called Seizing the Means of Computation, a Big Tech Disassembly Manual. So, um, you know, we, we bring people in with different opinions uh, all the time. This one is talking about how we can try to find a way to have more inclusiveness in terms of some of the things that people uh, are able to, to do. Um, so, for example, the concerns about copyright, patent, trade secret, and non-compete and other IP rights that are causing us to be kind of forced down a path of using software in a certain way. So that's his talk. Um, should definitely be interesting. Uh, and we, our opening keynote is really interesting as well. Elizabeth Adams, who is the Global Chief AI Culture and Ethics Officer for Women in AI, talking about responsible artificial intelligence, the case for inclusive tech. And this has been an issue um, where we found you know, AI systems have been uh, not properly uh, identifying people of color, for example. Um, so, you know, a lot of things that are brought up from this. So she is going to discuss things like discrimination, uh, fairness, digital injustice and bias. So she opens the show. Um, and so hopefully wow. that'll be really useful. I'm really looking forward to that. That's yeah, going to be good. I didn't know what this, I, I didn't know where you were going with this initially. I hadn't admittedly had not looked at this keynote and I was going to say that the way the world's going right now, I think I'd even deal with irresponsible AI, maybe are better than humans, but not when it comes to this stuff. Not when it comes to this stuff. Yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, some humans I wonder about. Yeah. Um, also, I'm going to just bring up a, a talk that I just recently got the abstract for uh, Spring Framework 6. And a lot of people in our world um, have been Java developers and or are Spring developers um, in the back end. Uh, Spring Framework 6, it's interesting. It's uh, now is going to require uh, when we get to six, Java 17 and above and J Jakarta EE 9 and above because of the way you have to enable certain technologies in the future. It's also going to support Growl VM. So you can build like a native application in Spring booting up really fast. So um, uh, Josh awesome. Longston. Yeah, it's going to be, it's, it's, it's probably a good thing overall, yeah. uh, you know. So it kind of brings it into the modern world in terms of fast container starts and things like that. So this should be really yeah. interesting. Cool. All right, let's get into some news items then. So first uh, things first, gonna, we have, yeah, go ahead. No, no, I was going to go over a talk pick, but that's fine. You, if you want to, we have time. Um, all right, so kind of uh, riffing on that, another framework. So there's a, another talk at ET um, by the core maintainers, committers, co-founders of Dapper. Um, which is a microservice application framework that basically allows you to stand up, build uh, cloud-native applications. It gives you a lot of the services you're looking for around, you know, communication between microservices, storage, authentication, et cetera. Kind of what are the best practices around that? And it gives you like a all, you know, batteries included approach to stand up microservices on the cloud, which is a pretty complicated thing these days with all the different components and deployment patterns and tools that are available. Um, Mark Fussell and Yaron, um, I don't know how to say his name, Yaron Schneider are, are both uh, co-founders, core maintainers of this. They're both 
um, from Microsoft. So they 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 work on Azure. So they have a lot of cloud experience. They know and probably seen a lot of different problems and patterns and came up with Dapper based off of that. So um, I think this is something definitely worth listening to to kind of get particularly their insight on problems they've seen and how this framework addresses those problems um, and maybe worth taking a spin on this too. Fantastic. All right. So that's ETE 2022. Register now. Uh, it's definitely worth your time. Okay. One news item. Uh, just got this off the BBC. Um, chip giant arm is set to ax 15% of its staff after the deal with NVIDIA fails. Uh, so it turns out that they were going to be merged into NVIDIA uh, and unfortunately, uh, it looks like there was so much regulative uh, hurdles to get over to do that, that uh, NVIDIA is turning it down. And so SoftBank, who I guess currently owns them, uh, is going to list the company. Uh, it's going to list them actually on the NASDAQ, which is interesting because they're a UK con company. And uh, that's, I guess, kind of a loss for the UK, but good for the US. So look for that in the future. Uh, and the layoffs seem to be coming from both the US and the UK. So interesting, I mean, ARM's still out there, the tech is still out there, but that attempt to kind of merge it into a larger company failed. So we'll have to see where that goes. I know a lot of systems are built based on the ARM specifications and, um, you know, I, I assume it'll have a good life once it's uh, been, you know, listed and, and has shareholders and such. We'll have to see where that is. I guess, is this global staff? Is it staff across the board? Is it a specific, uh, specific unit? So I'm not sure which units or anything. They I didn't see that in the article, but they did say the UK and the US specifically. Okay. I'm hoping, mm -hmm. I know US has plans. It's going to take years to bear fruit, but of, of building up their own chip factories and, you know, being able to bring some of that back. Um, right. Hopefully, you know, these these folks that are um, getting axed can find opportunities at those other places that we're hoping to build up here. Yeah. And maybe when they list them on the NASDAQ, maybe that's one of their goals. We'll have to see what their actual you know, uh, corporate plans are for now that they're not joining up with NVIDIA. So we'll see. All right. This is one you pulled out that I was like, wow. Um, Google's new tech can read your body language without cameras on Wired. <laughs> yeah, it's just scary. Um, <laughs> scary and it's not as invasive as a camera or video camera. So this is, it's using radar. So you recall a couple years ago, I forget which variant of the Pixel. Um, they introduced a radar sensor in the phone where you could do um, gestures like, you know, um, tap or go like, it's not on the screen, but in the air and the radar would sense it. So this mm -hmm. unit, which basically has, um, this radar and a projector, um, camera, et cetera. Uh, actually, I don't think this has a camera, but it can, it can basically detect movement gestures. Um, and I guess your arms and stuff. I don't know how well it is at detecting, uh, facial, Things like, I think one of the points is that it's not tracking people's identities. It's just looking mm, at movement. Okay. Um, uh, the idea being that they want it, technology to be more interactive and aware of folks so that it feels more natural. And I'm sure anytime I think of these kind of things, I really think about accessibility and think about folks that um, can't type, can't do certain things that, you know, technology like this could be a game changer um, yeah. for, for folks um, that have different types of impediments that are able to now uh basically interact with that technology. So hopefully this is used for good purposes and not nefarious purposes. Um, and, you know, they keep building on it. It's uh, it, the same uh, department, I want to say at Google that, that does their advanced technology and products department. Um, they do wearables. They've done stuff like you mentioned, a touch sensitive denim jacket. Uh, so 
this radar is not just it, they want technology to be able to the scary part is like pre, to understand our needs and potentially our emotions and like react to us it's like okay another set of data points to collect and, and know what we're thinking and doing but um mm. hey i mean i i think there's good things here especially like vehicles that want to continue going touchless and touchscreen and not have steering wheels and stuff the, uh, the u.s just approved um of autonomous driver technology that you know as a that does not have to have a, a steering wheel so they're approving that approach of building vehicles that don't have any touch controls any steering wheels or anything like that so maybe something like this could be used where you're you know you're using gestures to drive like your this? car <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna stop stop yeah like, My take me there, and it just you takes know? you there. <laughs> yeah. See, you can't have a field day, like, driving a snuff. Oh, Dad, look, you know. Yeah. So they're using oh, the same sensor in this research that they were uh, prototyping and, and researching with, with the Pixel 4, the mm -hmm. Soli, S-O-L-I oh, sensor. Yeah. Interested in looking into that more. Interesting. Interesting. Cool. All right. Here's one that's uh, a little yikes. So we all know... Um, we know that lithium-ion batteries, it's not a good idea to, let's say, hit them with a hammer, um, puncture them. Uh, but let's say, don't ship a whole bunch of parts laden as computer, uh, was it computer waste, I believe it was? Uh, computer parts into a shipping container with a bunch of lithium-ion batteries. One of the weird things about lithium-ion, and if you search for, um, I'm going to mention this site, it's, it's, it's a Reddit site called Spicy Pillows. And that sounds a little scary, but what it is, it's it's uh, all the lithium ion batteries people have that balloon up with the gas when they mm -hmm. start failing. And there's all these crazy pictures, like it'll be a phone, but the glass is like popped way off in a giant pillow of <laughs> a lithium ion battery gas, which I believe is hydrogen gas in that case, um, is sitting there ready to explode. And if they hit the air, I mean, it basically, you know, lithium combusts in the air on, on immediately so this is basically a container ship uh shipping container loaded with a whole bunch of discarded lithium batteries back in uh last summer uh completely like burned apart on its way to a ship so this is the coast guard has come out and said please keep in mind when you're shipping things that if you could ship you know lithium you gotta be very careful how you ship lithium ion batteries and and battery waste because it's dangerous um you know luckily it was it was on its way to the port of virginia it was going to go onto a ship to China, a third-party chartered ship to China. If it would have gotten on that and burned up, it could have burned the whole thing down. And also there was a, a, a I don't know if you remember recently, there was a big cargo ship called the Felicity Ace. It was a huge car carrier that had a lot of uh, uh, electric vehicles as well as Bentleys and other things. And it caught fire and sunk. And they said the electrical batteries made it tough to fight them. So one of the downsides of electrification, I think the upsides are really, really, really important. But uh, hopefully battery technology continues to improve and we find ways to find battery tech that doesn't explode on us. Hopefully we can find a way to eject this stuff cost-effectively into space at some point. <laughs> there you go. Plus the fireworks will be immense and cool. Uh, all right. So then that's, uh, so that's our quick news items. A couple blog articles. Um, one of them here. Uh, Sujan, you found this one. How I discovered thousands of open databases in yeah. AWS by Avi Lumelsky. Cool ton of unprotected databases that you can reach publicly that have easy to guess uh, or default username passwords. And some of those cases, there could be honey, you know, honey pots, meaning, you know, 
they're purposely put out there for folks to get into because they want to get your information or access to your stuff and you may be mm -hmm. using them for something and so they want to collect that data. In other cases, um, <coughs> folks are just not configuring these properly, right? They're not putting them behind um, security VPCs and security groups or not, you know, whitelisting who can access it. They're not putting uh, good uh, user, user, uh, username, password policies in place. So they're completely unprotected. And apparently based off of what this person was doing and scanning and searching for it is it's more prevalent than you would think, which is really scary. And the discussion on hacker news on are real interesting because a, a lot of folks are, are seem to be rightfully concerned now is that um, since everyone's getting on the cloud and not many folks have a background in security or setting these things up, like it's lowered the bar for engineers that are deploying and configuring things and that should be learning more about how to do it the right way before going ahead and doing it. Yeah. So it just, you read this and you're just like, Oh my God, this is scary. And not only is it scary that it's happening. It's also very easy with all the tooling available and what they did in terms of scanning here. Right. And going through, um, is is getting access to these things. Yeah, mass scan was a scanner he used. He picked the number of cider blocks and just went at it. Yep. So, <laughs> and then he found he had over 337,000 337, uh, IP port combinations in almost no time. And many of them got, they got in uh, and like opened the, the port, I guess. That's yeah. insanity. So, so, I mean, first, to even have think twice just a little tip for everybody here think twice before letting your database be open on the internet to connect to you from a tool don't do that because you're leaving a port to a database open and if they hack in they get your data no matter what so at bare minimum that should be behind the firewall and hopefully on another service that is then only accessible from the service that needs it you exactly. know, I would push everyone to the Amazon's principles of least privilege. And even if it's not Amazon, follow those principles. Absolutely. You know, only get to what you absolutely need to get to. In fact, that's another, I know I'm tangenting here, but that's a really good blog post uh, from Keith Gregory this last yeah. month, uh, actually in January, managing internet access for AWS workloads going out. Don't just let, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, don't just let it go everywhere. <laughs> You know, because yeah. if, if someone compromises that service and then it can make a call to something else and that can be used to get in, you're just creating a nightmare. So really never, never a case where you should be exposing a database publicly like nope. that. It should only be behind the right level of uh, IAM policies and security and it should only be accessible by whatever service or, you know, that actually needs to talk to it. Wow. This is insane. Like just, ugh. Yeah. So he like <laughs> logged the data out, put it into CSV, analyzed it with pandas. Um, and he, he did a lot of research and, and put a thing together to basically uh, provide his findings. And look at him. He's good. He's he's good for doing this. Yeah. However, I don't know how much he shares that like could be used to compromise them further. Yeah. But hey, look, he, he's reported the companies they found under, under until a certain limit because he basically had too many to report information of um and then of course he was talking to aws of course they're saying hey it's and it's true it's shared response the shared responsibility model of aws is we'll manage the plumbing we'll yep. make sure the physical servers are safe you're setting up all your privileges you are responsible for the privileges yep and that's absolutely true yeah so just great advice and i'm 
sadly not surprised that people take shortcuts and don't think about this stuff. And that's how people lose money and get their stuff stolen. So it's a shame. Yeah. All right. Here's another blog article from Adrian Gonzalez Carpintero. Uh, Run pandas as fast as Spark. So first of all, give our uh, viewers a, an overview of pandas and Spark at a very quick thumbnail. Sure. So uh, Spark is basically a like distributed computing platform. You're allowed, you're basically can have a, a cluster of machines and you can process large data sets across that cluster. So you can parallelize your work. You can split your data across a set of computers and say, run these operations against each of these data sets. And then, um, and I'm oversimplifying a lot of this, right? And then combine oh. the results at the end <clears throat> to write out to a data warehouse or write out to a set of files or to aggregate something together. So it gives you an ability to write a program to process data and then say, now take my recipe that processes the data and split it apart and send that recipe to all the, all the nodes that are in that cluster. And each of those nodes will have data that that recipe is going to run against on that node and then combine all the results at the end. So that's Spark. Um, pandas. Science, basically. Oh, go ahead. So commonly used for data science type processing. Yeah. Yeah. Like folks, use, folks who use Hadoop, et cetera, and then even, you know, slowly, you know, moved over to Spark. And now Spark has kind of become that de facto distributed data processing platform. Um, right. Pandas is a Python based uh, library uh, that allows you to basically do. Uh, data processing, data analysis, statistics, et cetera. There's a library you can add on top of it, but allows you to do a lot of like data slicing and dicing and processing and things like that. Um, a lot of folks get their first exposure to it. If they're using like Jupyter notebooks, they get some data set, get data from somewhere. Um, they're analyzing, exploring it, and then visualizing it on there. They're using Pandas to do a lot of that work. Um, so Pandas has a notion of a data frame. It's kind of like one of their core um, primitive units. Uh, that you use to define rows and columns and, and process data and, and run operations against like filter, um, map, uh, collect, contains, et cetera, stuff like that. Um, so a lot of data scientists, data analysts, et cetera, are used to using pandas to do their data exploration. Um, eventually they want to get this, their logic, right? And they're like, okay, that's great for the little POC we did and we proved out an algorithm or something, but now we want to take this and move it into spark because it can run on large data sets on a production cluster um what this does is you can use pandas um it used to be called the koalas library that was eventually uh merged into spark as a spark three something is mentioned in here i don't remember the exact version but mm -hmm. you can basically use pandas data frames and convert back and forth in spark, spark data frames and panda data frames and use use a subset of the pandas api directly in spark now so folks cool. that are just used to using um pandas can take what they built and move it over um, more easily than before uh, into Spark and then run across a cluster on a large data set. Now, this is not news because this is from last year around November, but still um, good still, yeah, good uh, I, think, I think it's really uh, interesting. Actually, uh, Keith Gregory uh, shared the the article with me yesterday because we were talking about um, a potential opportunity where where um, they're, they built something in Pandas, they want to move it over to Spark. And maybe maybe they'll be able to use reuse a lot of what they did. Hopefully, wow, this is really really cool. All right, good to know. Good to know. All right. Well, by the way, for all these things, if you go to our uh, our website when you look at our blog entries and such, like for example, if you go to the blog here, sorry, to the podcast, just briefly, if I grab last podcast, um, we have show notes for everything on here. So all the links are there. It'll also be on the YouTube channel in the chat once it uh, goes live and gets published. 
and you can also view the video from our website. So if you're on our website, you can go to resources podcast, pick the current cop podcast will be 47. Uh, and you can go and grab the links for things we're talking about here. So cool. All right. I threw my own in here just be for fun. Uh, Cause I, I do love uh, uh, talking about pain because it helps the pain subside. <laughs> but uh, I, I wanted to point out something kind of weird. Um, JavaScript has a module system and I know there was a node version of the module system for loading extra uh, files at runtime. And then there was a browser um, uh, importing system. So the ECMAScript JavaScript modules import uh, syntax, which is import and export, is now what most people use when they're building things like React and Angular and Vue applications. So they'll use like import something from something else. Um, and also exporting things by name or what have you. So what I did was I found out after hours and hours of debugging a problem that I thought something was the default export of a library, which means the one that doesn't have to have a name. When it turns out something else was the default and the error message I was getting from Next.js, which is a React build framework for the server, was telling me something that I thought was one place, but the stack trace wasn't useful enough to figure out what the problem was. So I outlined that in here, but it comes down to most React developers export components, this is a component, as the default export of a file. So the syntax for exporting default is export default something, whether it's a string, a number, an object, a function. And so a function is a React component, it renders the React content. When you import the default, you don't put it in curly braces, you just give it a name. And I knew this before when I used to teach this stuff a lot. This name could be cheeseburger over here. So first of all, we don't care what you name it when you're importing it because it's the default. It's, it's kind of unfair because you really should be using the same name as is in the file. So I'm hoping that um, there's a good ESLint rule on this and I can't remember off the top of my head if that's turned on by default, but this is totally legitimate. So first way you can mess yourself up is by picking the wrong name and then getting confused about what's being used. But this would still technically work. So that throws you a bit when you're using imports in JavaScript. But, and I have a little complaint there. We'll skip that. Um, another one. So what I was doing was I had a component. And this component was being exported uh, and used. Uh, let's see here. And it was using something called use SWR. All right. SWR, whoops, sorry. Wait a minute. Yeah. SWR is a hook which does networking. So here's the bottom line. The bottom line was, come here, you. I was using it as the non default import. So I was using import of SWR config because that's a component. Because I thought most libraries use. Uh, their default exports as components. So this SWR config component is supposed to like wrap your stuff, okay? It's supposed to wrap your information so you can have default settings, it's component. But it turns out that's not the default export of this library. The default export from the library was the hook itself, not a component. 
So I know this is like probably not going off the way I thought it would when I was explaining it before. And I do see a typo in my blog post, which I almost always do when I explain these things. So I'm going to go hide, but um, minor. But the point being that don't always assume that the default export from a React library is a component, even though that's probably what you will do as a developer. Because when you're building an application in React and you're putting all these files together and saying, I'm building a component, a component, a component, your default mode is generally, as most React developers, is to create a default export as the component. This library used a completely non-component export as the default. And the way the error message came out pointed to the wrong file from what I thought it was. So I was looking in one place for a long time trying to figure this out and everything looked like it worked properly. But it was the outer wrapper tool in here um, that I needed to use this import use SWR as the default import and then use a named import with curly braces for this one. I'm going to clean up this blog post too. I realize there's like two typos that are making this hard to explain. But bottom line is this should be curly braced. And in most React development uh, environments, most React developers, your default import is generally a component. That's all I have to say. So sorry, a little bit cryptic, but hey. <laughs> Yet another bomb. <laughs> okay, let's talk about the Apple event because I think there's a couple things I want to kind of marinate on around the Apple event. So the first thing is Tom's guide has a nice overview of all the things that were released. They released a fair amount of hardware. So one of the things is they released the new iPhone SE, so a lower priced iPhone that they put the uh, A15 chip in, which is great. So it's going to be better battery life and you know, cheap uh, relatively compared to other uh, iPhones. So it's a nice upgrade for the smaller form factor iPhone SE. Um, they released the iPad Air 5 with an M1 chip. So that's also going to be really interesting to see. Um, it's like they say they claim it's twice as fast as the laptop in the same range. Well, you know, you buy a laptop for 500 bucks, it's not gonna be a screamer, but if it's twice as fast as that, it seems like it'd be pretty productive, but it's a tablet. So how productive can it really be, right? It's great for games uh, and great for like, you know, taking notes and stuff, but you know, I'm not gonna run my whole app development on it. That said, um, it's got an M1 chip. So hopefully we're gonna see more sophisticated things taking advantage of that chip, uh, even in these iPad Airs. There is also a brand new Mac Studio. Think of it as like a double cheeseburger version of the Mac Mini. Uh, it's like double the height or triple the height of the Mac Mini uh, with some impressive speeds and impressive hardware in them. So anyway, that's all listed in here. They have like prices. Tom's Harbor is a great guy to go to to look at some of this stuff. There's a new studio display that isn't $6,000. It's $15.99, still a lot of money to spend. Uh, and they axed the 27-inch Mac. But one of the things, and I know you want to talk about this, is they also, alongside of this, released Mac OS 12.3 and the latest version of iOS, which I think is whatever. I'll get the version of that while you're talking. Go ahead. Um, yeah, so Mac OS 12.3 was just announced and, and released, which arrives with an interesting feature. So iPad OS 15.4 is also That's rolled out. Um, and now they both support a feature called Universal Control, which is still in beta, but allows you to control a Mac and an iPad at the same time with a single keyboard and a mouse or a trackpad. Um, so you can enter text on either device, drag files between them. I haven't played around this. So I can't talk about it with, with any detail about how it works in practice and how seamless it is. But 
with where everyone being remote these days or moving around where we're working on the office and not having all the equipment that they want, if they have an iPad sitting around, they have their machine, basically getting another display may not be the most ideal setup, but now you have a secondary display that you can easily just um, not have to like connect with hardware anywhere. It's probably just wireless. And then having this in place um, is really nice. Um, and would have been nice right now, actually, for this podcast where <laughs> the the pages that we're talking about, the news items on, on the iPad or something, right? Or have Slack or something. Right on the iPad. Oh, look at look that. At this. this is me. God knows what I'm browsing because I'm moving it backwards. <laughs> I'm using my, my mouse for my computer. So what I did was I enabled this, and it's just a setting uh, in settings somewhere. I forget already where. But I put the 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 um, Mac, uh, sorry, put the iPad mini on the left side of my Mac just now. And I dragged the mouse and it took a little lag of like a quarter second. And then all of a sudden it became a circle, just like it would if you connect the mouse to an iPad um, and you have full control over it. So it was really seamless and easy to activate. And I think that's great. I used, I've used that other feature they have, which is, uh, what do they call it? Um, oh, where is it on here? Anyway, it's it's the remote the remote access feature that you have now where you can treat the iPad as a second screen for a Mac, but it's one way and it's very limited. You know, you don't really have like much control over it beyond like using it as a separate screen and you're still moving things around in it. But mm -hmm. this is actually literally like we just said, drag and drop. It's a really cool feature. Yeah. I mean, um, it'd be I could totally use it for this. I could use it for meetings where if I'm moving from one room to another. It's much easier to carry an iPad around than a monitor. So you you get a lightweight, um, untethered second second display uh, for cheap, basically. Uh, if you already have an iPad that supports, you know, iPad OS 15.4, right? So um, I'm definitely eager to try this out, see how well it works. I'm pretty sure I'm going to take advantage of it. They mentioned a few other things like uh, spatial audio, which has uh, Apple Music now is dynamic head tracking support. Um, for compatible AirPods, of course, for AirPods. Um, Get the money out. Get the money out. But that yeah. means that, like, I suppose if they had, like, a surround sound mix, you know, this this whole spatial audio mix thing, as you turn around, you hear the sound differently. That's that's wild that you get that. Yeah. So, oh, and good yes, news, you get more emoji. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how that – do you know how that works in terms of, like, what kind of – recording technology is going into that, I guess, how they have set up. So like, are they using that for like, let's say I want to hear a symphony or orchestra. Are they being recorded in a way that I can get that spatial audio? They're starting to be, from what I understand, there's, there are tracks that are coming out, like albums are coming out with spatial audio support. Okay. So I would think that it's not something you're going to get for the entire catalog. Maybe there's like mm -hmm. a simulated surround. Okay. You know how sometimes you can get like the sound expander APIs and stuff like that and make things sound wider than they are. Um, but this is literally you turn your head to the left for a movie or whatever, and right. you're seeing and hearing things more. That that's gotta be crazy. Yeah. So I'm really interested in trying it out. I know if I want to try it out, I'm gonna have to like um I just bought a guitar. I can't buy another pair of pods. <laughs> I'm gonna get killed at home. Um, yeah, this looks really interesting. So and there's a new uh, Siri. Uh, there's a less gendered voice option for Siri filters for the podcast app, all sorts of stuff like that. So that's pretty cool. And of course, more accurate battery capacity readings. Uh-huh. Moving on. Um, I also found this while we were talking about that. Um, this is someone's uh, blog opinion. Jean-Louis uh, Gassi, I think, is his name. 
uh, Jean Lewis Gassi. Uh, and he was just kind of like doing some reviews of uh, the M1 Ultra chip and reading up on it. He points out uh, an Anon Tech article, so I will put that in the show notes as well. Um, here's what they did. The M1 Ultra is the new chip chip that they have for the uh, Apple workstation they have coming up, the, the Apple Studio. Turns out that the M1 Max has always had a uh, channel integration, uh, like a bus, for hooking up with another M1 Max. It's been in the design since the beginning. That's what they did. They basically bonded two M1 Maxes together on a, on a die. So now you've got shared memory, shared you know bus speed, and all sorts of stuff like power consumption, all in one dual chip. Um, what's crazy about this is this is the specs they had listed. First of all, a 64-core GPU, which I'm assuming is getting close to like desktop GPU category or maybe faster. Who knows? Um, so each GPU in the 64 GPUs is a separate device to the system and the software vendors have to figure out innovative ways to connect them together. So I would assume it's going to take a little while for the software to catch up, but I'm assuming things like Adobe are going to figure that out relatively soon with things like Premiere and, and rendering. Um, so there's that. It's also a, where is it on here? Here we go. 20 core CPU, 64 core GPU and 32 core neural engine. The thing's crazy. And I think it's something like $1,900 or something like that. So it's, it's, it's not cheap, but if you want workstation performance, uh, they got a machine for you. You'd have to set it up with a nice monitor and keyboard and such, but it's, it's like a good powerful replacement for a desktop developer uh, who isn't taking theirs on the road. It's basically like double the power of the latest 16 inch Mac um, in a, a form factor that can deal with the heat dissipation. That's what does it done. say. Does it say what this has done to battery life? Uh, well, there I know because this isn't a laptop. This is a desktop. They put it in. My assumption oh, is that it burn uh, a battery right out. <laughs> I, didn't even hear I didn't even hear that part. Okay. Yeah, no, that's okay. And then th that's because they released this as part of the oh, not the studio display. Come back now. Uh, the Mac Studio. Of course, it starts at 1999. Um, I am assuming there we go. It costs four grand for an M1 Ultra. So before you get all excited, it's like <laughs> buying two desktops. Yeah. Well, it is like because you got two like desktops. Buy, it actually is like buying two desktops. So <laughs> that Jeep, the 64 core GPU. I'm wondering. I mean, they should be able to do a lot of uh, machine learning. Well, there's there's a 32 machine learning cores. Or something engine, like yeah. That. That's a separate neural engine. I don't quite know what that what that's for. I'm thinking more like general purpose machine learning. Yeah, but uh, like the CPU based training. stuff, right? So like, hey, you got the the, the GPUs. Um, you got 64 of those at the maximum. You've got the 24 20 cores of CPU. You've got the neural engines. The thing's gonna start talking to you and saying, Dave, Dude. I don't want you to go out and check out the uh, spaceship, Dave. Um, it's gonna start telling you how to live. Anyway, if you got four grand, and I don't crypto have maybe able to do crypto mining on the sixty-four core GPU. <laughs> it could be. <laughs> oh, did you hear about that? Side note: um, there is a fake Nvidia driver laying around out there. But what happens is Nvidia, I believe it was, and and Miles, my son, can tell me in chat that I'm full of it. Um, uh, what time is it? Oh, you have two minutes. Um, <laughs> is it they they there's a they throttle it so you can't do crypto mining. 
but there's a fake uh, uh, video driver out there that has a ton of spyware in it that lets you unlock the video. You install it, you get hacked. So anyway. All right, I am going, I know you have to have a hard out here uh, at uh, two minutes from now. So I can take on the rest of these myself if you want to. I'm just okay. gonna bring up a couple of things. Um, uh, in our helpful sites section, we have uh, catalog of design patterns, which remember design patterns before we all got functional. Um, this is a nice website that like kind of makes them very clear, uh, nice pictures for someone just getting into this kind of thing. Nice. Um, did they use Hey Bro? Yeah, they did Hey Bro. I'm gonna have to tell them to stop doing that. Um, <laughs> but anyway, there's lots of code samples in here as well. So it looks like a neat site if you're looking at like classical object oriented design and you're looking for you know documentation on patterns. Was that using types? Wait, what language is that? TypeScript. You know, I don't know. I thought that one. I don't know. Class. No, it's uh. Wait. Is that dot? I don't That's know. Swift. Swift? No, it's not Swift, is it? Or is it some sort of pseudocode? It doesn't look like pseudocode. I don't know. Good question. Interesting. Okay. Interesting, yeah. Next oh, one is a... Yeah. 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 Next one's a Vim reference guide that I thought was nice. And I still use Vim. I, I'm curious from you as a reader uh, or listener or viewer, if you still use Vim or Emacs. We, different people at Chariot have different opinions on editors. We all do. Everyone does in software. I still find it keeps my keys on the keyboard, uh, my hands on the keyboard more. Uh, and so I like using Vim. Here's a nice Vim reference guide for people looking into getting into Vim. So it's kind of nice put together in one place. Um, this we will wait for next week. It's too much of a discussion for, um, yeah. So let's skip the rest of these for now. We'll cover the rest of these next week. Uh, but that about does it. So again, register for ETE. Uh, it's coming up uh, in April to 19th and 20th. And the uh, early bird is still until March 31st, 150. Don't forget to do that. Uh, and if you're interested in uh, what Chariot does and potentially working for Chariot, uh, hey, we're hiring. So uh, you can take a look at our jobs at chariotsolutions.com slash careers. Um, so John, you have two seconds to say what we're looking for right now? Sure. Um, we're looking for uh, backend folks, Java, Python, Node, Closure, Golang. Um, we're looking for front-end, uh, React, Angular. We're looking for mobile, um, iOS, and Android. We're looking for uh, senior data engineers that um, have a lot of experience on you know building and architecting data pipelines on the cloud, AWS, Azure, um, Google Cloud Compute. So, uh, you know, we're aggressively hiring. Um, we're interested in talking to you. Take a look. Reach out to us. There's a lot of stuff on our website about the kind of projects we work on. Yeah, any questions, we're more than more than happy to chat with folks and, and tell them more about Cherry and find out where they are in their career, what they want to be doing. Even if you're not on the fence, you're not sure whether you want to do consulting or you're not sure whether you want to, you know, make a move, um, but you just want to find out more, I still think it's worth having that conversation. So please uh, feel free to reach out. The way Ken and I are here are the way we are in real life. So completely, this is who yep. we are. All right, great. Thank you so much, Sujan, and everyone. Have a good two weeks. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Take care. Thanks, Ken.